Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's Le Mans week for MotoGP, but the big news, of course, since last time we spoke is that Suzuki have announced they will be pulling out of the sport at the end of the season. But Dorna have hit back and said, well, that might not actually be contractually allowed. We'll have the latest for you in the next few moments. And what's next for both parties? Alongside a few interesting bits to come out from the Hareth test. And D-Day is looming for a decision on that second seat at the factory Ducati team. The recording date is Monday the 9th of May. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever, Crash Moto GP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Well, Keith... Big news, Suzuki and MotoGP. I think we can all admit we didn't quite see that one coming. What were your initial thoughts on it? My initial thoughts were if I was in the Suzuki team, I'd have been well and truly peed off with that because they didn't have a clue until Sunday night either. I mean, it was one of those situations where it just started to filter through on Monday afternoon um, during the test. I mean, it's no coincidence that Sylvain Gintoli, who is really you know, embedded in the Suzuki team um, and was working for BT MotoGP Broadcasting, um, had no clue when they were on air on the Sunday. There was no allusion to it at all. There was no comment, no sideways glance, nothing. Nobody had a clue on Sunday that this was coming from the management. Um, and you can only blame the board back in Japan. This is, this is, a, this is the board in Japan that have made this decision. Now... It can only be financial, both looking forward and the like. There seems to be a disjoint at Suzuki between what they sell and what they're doing. I mean, that old adage about, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday used to be the way that, you know, MotoGP and the previous 500s, 250s, 125s, as was, um, used to sell motorcycles. But now that sports bikes have basically tanked, um, it's all off-road, it's enduro-type bikes and so on and so forth. Completely different marketplace now compared with the one that was aligned with Grand Prix motorcycle racing. So my my fear is that Suzuki have, have kind of had this knee-jerk rea- reaction to sales and the like. I mean, some of the Suzuki models are, are quite, quite aged now. There's a lot of bikes that Suzuki manufacture and sell that are kind of, they're, they're missing the market to some extent. And obviously someone back in Japan has, has rounded up the board and woken them all up and said, here, look at this, we're spending all this money, despite the fact they are so successful on the racetrack. I mean, it's devastating from, from, from a race fan's point of view. I mean, absolutely, probably the prettiest motorbike out there is still, from the day it arrived in the paddock, I remember seeing it in Sepang and wandering around it and looking at it 
dribbling because it, it was such a good looking motorcycle. And to win a world title, to be in with a chance of another one, if they can get it right this year as well, it just, it's devastating news. And came so late. It seems like the board in Japan made their decision and they've yanked the rug. Interesting you say about Dawn and not allowing them to go. Well, it's um, my experience that, that contracts and the like, if, if you've got an unhappy party on one side of a contract or the other, the contract probably isn't worth the paper it's written on half the time. Yeah, they can they can probably force some kind of financial you know hit. Um, I'm sure Dorna will have had it nailed down because there have been people that have pulled out before that have left Dorna a bit high and dry. And you can be absolutely sure that Dorna have got a rock solid contract. But it's not in anybody's interest to have a war over a contract. Um, because to start with, it will mean that other manufacturers, if they see Dorna come down hard on Suzuki, it takes away their autonomy to some extent on what they can do with their team moving forward. You know, what are the other clauses in the contract that Dorna can actually enforce should they want to? We've all looked at contracts, haven't we? I mean, look at broadcast contracts, you know, whatever you like, and you, you, you get to about the 10th the page and you think, well, according to this, you know, I must die if I, if I don't do something that they've written in here that I should do. I mean, the amount of contracts I've signed that I never wanted to sign right from the beginning, but had to sign them or wouldn't have got the job. And that's both racing and broadcast contracts. They are so incredibly complex. But I still rest the case that a contract is only any good if both parties, both sides of the party are happy with it. Uh, that's the only way it really works. We'll see how it shakes out. And we've seen, of course, the same with riders, haven't we? You know, just to illustrate your point there, Keith, we've seen Zarko and KTM, Vinales and Yamaha. If the two parties don't want to continue, there's no point trying to force people to, to stick to a contract. You've got to reach an agreement. And uh, this is what came out in this Dorna statement, wasn't it? It was, uh, which was extraordinary in itself in that it would only, this kind of statement would only come out if they were 99.9% .9 sure this is what Suzuki are planning. We still haven't had anything official from Suzuki. This is the part that, uh, you know, is frustrating a lot of people is that they, they still don't quite know exactly where they are. All we know is that the team were told this. And obviously, Dorna putting out this statement underlines that this is Suzuki's intention. But uh, probably for the legal reasons that Keith's mentioned, we don't have the official statement from the Suzuki headquarters yet. And it will only come from the headquarters. It's not going to come from the race team. This is way above their level, as Keith says. And the timing of this, I mean, to tell the team and then go off on holiday. It's a public holiday in Japan, wasn't it? I mean, just, you know. I know why that was. They were hiding from Livio Supo. <laughs> <laughs> just hired in the ex-Honda man to um, shake the team into shape. Livio Supo's not a man to muck about with. He'll be looking for him. Well, exactly. And then, and then to, to give this announcement, and it's not just, you know, obviously Livio Super and, and Alex Rins and, and Jaya Mir, the, the big names that, of course, will now be wondering what happens next for the riders. But it's not just the, the top names that you see in the limelight. It's about all the people back in the factory who put the, the, the bikes together, everybody from the PR and comm side of things as well. It's all the people who are suddenly now at risk or of losing their jobs. And I mean, it, as you say, no official announcement from Suzuki yet. And it, we're still early enough in the season that it gives them time to perhaps find other uh, terms of employment. But Keith, this uncertainty, it's just not really on, is it? Well, uh, it, we've got the opposite to what we had when KTM came to the paddock. They sucked all the talent out of you know various places from Honda and all the rest of it. All of a sudden there was a, you know, if you were a, a tech, you could name your price. Right now it's the opposite way around, isn't it? With, with you know, some very, very good people, as you say, on a human level, it's an absolute disaster on a professional level. It's, it's, you know, very nearly as bad. 
I don't quite know what, you know, there, there, we will still have 24 bikes on the grid next year. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Aprilia will pick up the part, but Aprilia, where Dorna has a tough, you know, Dorna may assist Aprilia into that gap because they will want some funding from somewhere. Aprilia know that Dorna is, to not put too fine a point on it, up shit creek at the moment without the paddle. Um, Suzuki will obviously have to pay um, some kind of compensation towards what's happened because it is, it's an international contract that they have with Dorna. Dorna will, it will come down to nuts and bolts. It will come down to, to money at the end of the day and, and who can pay it off. Um, but Aprilia look like the, the, the ones that are going to benefit from, from this greatly, I would suggest, because they need another couple of bikes on the grid anyway. The weakest party, it seems to me at the moment, from a rider perspective, and you hit that really well, Jaimir is still in a good position because I can see a Honda fit with him quite easily. Polis Bargro is in a very weak position now because he hasn't performed uh, on the other side of the garage to Mark Marquez. Marquez is coming back to form as well. So Mir, Alex Rins, I don't think fits with the Honda thing anywhere near as well. So Rins is perhaps not quite as in, in a strong place, but he's a fast motorcycle racer. And there are contracts up next year. So it's it's kind of deflated all the aspirations of management, rider management, trying to get X number of dollars for their men because suddenly you've got two great guys that are in the market that are basically at bargain basement. I contacted Paco Sanchez, who's Juan Mir's manager, just at the end of last week, and he pretty much underlined what you've been saying there, Keith. I mean, they had no, absolutely no warning at all about this. They were close to a deal. I mean, he thought the deal was done with Suzuki. They'd had meetings that weekend, and basically they were ready to sign. They thought that the new deal was going to be announced this weekend or maybe the weekend after at Mugello. That's, you know, that's where they thought their future was. So this has come absolutely out of the blue for them. You spoke about the team members as well, of course. When you've got this five-year contract with Dorna between Suzuki and, and Dorna, those team members would have thought, well, you know, if I do my job well, I've got at least a five-year potentially stay here before I need to worry. If they were coming to the end of the contract, you'd understand, well, you know, things can happen. Last time when Suzuki pulled out, it was sort of, it coincided with the end of the contract. So there wasn't quite the shock there. But certainly to, to be six races into a five-year contract, you wouldn't have been expecting to, to be told this news. So... Um, and you've got to worry if you're Dorna. I mean, what about the other manufacturers? They, they all operate in these, Keith was explaining last week, these, the, the, the situation financially with things in Ukraine and the, the COVID things that the, in, in China, the supply chains, they're all facing the same pressures. And if, if Suzuki can sort of look at this and say, our answer to, the, to these financial problems is to get out of MotoGP, despite having a contract, maybe the others, it'll be at the back of their mind somewhere as well. So Dorna will have to, I think, make this quite painful for Suzuki just to sort of steady the ship here and make clear that, you know, we don't want everyone leaving. Let's remember it was only 2014. I think there were only three manufacturers, weren't there? There were uh, Honda, Ducati and Yamaha. I mean, there was only those three guys. Then we had all these these new people come in. Suzuki came back, uh, KTM joined, um, Aprilia. We've had this golden period with six manufacturers more competitive than ever. All of them could win races this year. And yet suddenly this has come out of the blue. And you, I think MotoGP needs to understand why has this been taken? Why, you know, is it value for money? Is it the cost of the sport? Is it the exposure? What is it that, that's behind Suzuki's decision here just to understand for the future? Because I think the understanding has been if the show is good, the racing is competitive, people will stay. And we're seeing here. As Keith says, a highly competitive team, world champions just over a year ago, a bike that's still competitive, and they still want to leave. It's a parallel. There is a parallel. It's called Sexit. We've had Brexit and we've left the European Union. <laughs> now we've got Sexit. Suzuki are leaving. And of course, the other members will have to make it tough 
on Suzuki or everyone will want to leave at some stage or rearrange their contracts. So sexy it is. <laughs> In all the things you've said over the last year, <laughs> that has to be clipped up and uh, put all over socials, please. That was excellent. Um, but so what you say, picking up, picking up what Keith said, you know, we, we expect this to still be the same amount of bikes on the grid next year, even if Suzuki do pull out. And and Dorna have also said in that statement, you know, well, it's okay because we've, we've got interest anyway. We've got manufacturers and there's, and there's interest from independent teams as well. But Pete, you know, we've seen that, uh, and then Keith made the point, you know, Aprilia might fill that void, but also the, the Moto3 uh, champs, uh, Leopard Racing have also said they are absolutely interested uh, in replacing Suzuki. So I suppose that, that at least there's some interest in a replacement. We're not going to lose bikes on the grid, which is, which is the main thing. Yeah, there was two parts to this Dorna statement, wasn't there? The first part was kind of warning Suzuki, look, there's a contract here. You can't just walk away. We will need an agreement to be reached. But then it, it sort of admitted that if an agreement had reached and, and sort of made clear, as we've said, you can't keep people if they don't want to say, but they're going to have to come to an agreement with Dorna. Then the second part of the statement was, as you say, Harry, this we've got all this interest from other manufacturers, from other teams. I mean, that, that's a separate thing, really. But you, as, as you say, you can't really compare Suzuki, you know, this this... With such a long history in, in, in the sport, you know, Barry Sheen, champion with them, Kevin Schwantz, uh, you know, all these great. This isn't just a factory that's popped in for a few years and is now leaving. This, they have a long history here. And yes, you can replace them numerically with an independent team, but that's not it's not the same thing, is it? It's not bringing the same exposure to the sport, bringing the same money into the sport that a, that a factory would bring. It would take someone like BMW to come in. But I mean, we see them sort of dabble around the edges with the safety car and the advertising, but they've never made that step. And you think with the way the world is financially now, with the uncertainty, why would they decide now? I don't know. If a team did want, if a manufacturer did want to come in, of course, there is a race team there. If they if they could grab hold and keep this team intact, it is a great opportunity in that sense. But um, but yeah, you know, yes, you could have another independent team. Pons would be another one to add to it. They they you know race winners before in MotoGP now. Uh, in Moto2, obviously at the front of the field still. So they might want to step up forward racing the same thing. There's another one you could add to it. There, there's no doubt independent teams that will want to step up, but it's not it's not a uh, a like-for-like like comparison, I would say, with Suzuki leaving. Mm. And you also, there's a, there's a good article on uh, Crash.net written by yourself, Pete McLaren. Um, Livio Supo doing a, a Ross Braun potentially as well and, and staying on to lead that team in, into an independent stage. Uh, again, another, another possibility. Do you think Livio would want to do that? <laughs> this, yeah, we just don't know, do we? Uh, you should know what, what Keith thinks about this. But because we haven't had the official announcement, we don't know what form this withdrawal will take and, and whether as part of this agreement that they will need to reach with Dorna, something might need to be done to try and keep the te- team intact. They'll be working on it right now as we speak. You can almost be sure of that. I mean, it's a situation that um, resolution is is necessary very quick. You imagine what the riders are feeling like at the moment. We're going to Le Mans next, one of the trickiest ones of the year. You know, and all the the personnel and the team, their heads have dropped. You know, and they've had a difficult year this year so far. You know, it's not been the kind of year that they've they've been expecting, and and they're just seemingly getting there. And all of a sudden, this bombshell's dropped in amongst them. Be interesting to see how they react. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what's going on around the paddock. When you know, as soon as they start getting there, you know, tomorrow, effectively Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, Thursday, press day on Thursday. There's bound to be an announcement, I would think, on Thursday. Um, we'll all be watching the monitors to try and see exactly what's going on there. So tune in, if you can, to the MotoGP.com um, site. 
but it's it is a disaster that they've of, of their making of Suzuki's making. It might turn out to be fiscally the, the correct thing to do. This, this world market I keep going banging on about. I mean, the the, the war in Ukraine, nothing yet is is it's not shaken out yet fully. We, you know, this if it escalates, it will be even worse. But even if it stays as it is, would it carry on going? The sanctions that have got to be placed on Russia and so on and so forth are going to be hard for most of Europe and the rest of the world. You know, once they start to resource, you know, more gas, more oil from different parts around the world, it's going to go up for everyone else. It's not, you know, it's, it's supply and demand. The less supply, the more the demand, the more the price you've got to pay for it. So worldwide, we're all going to be, you know, food. Isn't Ukraine, don't they provide 30% of the world's wheat or something ridiculous? Russia, another load of, of stuff that they, you know, anything that comes out of Ukraine and Russia, bearing in mind they're two fairly substantially sized countries, um, is going to be in short supply. We're going to have a problem. Yeah. I, I, I can see 2023 being a, an awkward year and everybody is going to be reeling back from extra costs. And maybe Suzuki have, have, have made the right decision for their corporation maybe they've looked at their books a little bit harder and seen that there isn't that correlation between Grand Prix racing and their road bike sales structure. And they've decided to jump early. Um, yeah, I think they should pay a massive penalty. I think Dorna should enforce that hard because it's through the Suzuki mismanagement or, or lack of oversight, if you like, that we're in this position. You don't yank the carpet out in the situation that they have. Having just signed, have they just signed a five-year deal with Dorna? They've just, as manufacturers, they've only just signed a five-year. Does the left hand at Suzuki not know what the right hand's doing? Because one lot have signed a contract for five years with Dorna, only just, and now they're pulling the rug. I mean, I, I mean, I can't think of a, a worse managed major corporation than that. Hamamatsu, they must. You know, must be on something special over there, I would think, to, to, to muck this up in the way they have. It's and incredible. Perhaps longer term as well, the worry is, will Suzuki ever be able to come back? If they leave under this kind of dark cloud, Dawn is not going to roll out the red carpet for them in the future, are they? And we saw Kawasaki well, make it leave. Easy. No, we saw Kawasaki leave. And, you know, it's been made clear that if Kawasaki want to come back, they'll have to buy a team. They won't get, as Suzuki got, as KTM got, as Aprilia got, their own grid places. OK, it took Aprilia until this year to get them. But, um, you know, they will have to, having left previously, having some years to run on their contract, they would have to go through that hassle of finding a team, buying them and everything else. And I, I would think Suzuki will now be facing that situation they were able to get away with it before by leaving but also giving this return date making clear look we will be back we're going to build this new bike um and all these kind of things but i i can't see them being able to to, to repeat that shall we say this time around given the length of contract that is, as you're saying Keith, you're six races into a, a five-year deal which was signed literally i think it was april 21 it was announced so i mean to, to go from that kind of commitment to being we want out whatever it takes <laughs> what a, what a complete reversal yeah i don't that's the bit i don't understand it's like sort of it's like it's the board decision is half the board were asleep at that particular moment in time when they signed off the deal for five years i mean again the length of a grand prix season nowadays is the longest it's ever been and they're looking to to add more rounds into the future as well the costs of that are huge um we are where we are with that um fingers crossed we don't see it from any other manufacturers 
And that will be uh, the big worry, won't it? Well, uh, Suzuki certainly uh, landing a bombshell on everybody in, in MotoGP in the last week. As Keith says, uh, stay tuned to Crash.net and uh, the MotoGP websites as well this week. Uh, if we do see any announcements, knowing our luck, they'll announce something just as we publish the podcast. So uh, make sure you stick about. Probably Tuesday morning there'll be something. Um, let's move on then from the uh, huge Suzuki news, of course, but it will continue to cloud, I think, the, the week building up to Le Mans. Um, but before Le Mans, we had some Jerez testing, Pete um, and uh, Quartararo trying some new things, not able to work directly on, on the M1's top speed because, of course, the uh, the engine freeze rules in MotoGP. Bagnaia getting some new stuff to play with, though. Uh, Bastianini, I should say, getting some new stuff to play with uh, because of his, uh, his good start to the season. So uh, what, what have we learned from uh, their bit of in-season testing? So this Suzuki news really exploded just at the end of the test. So that kind of took, obviously, all the attention away from what had been going on on track. But um, but it, as you say, they were perhaps not not quite the level of new parts that we might have expected from some of the teams. But they did have some new things, as you say. Basically, there was nobody that came out of this saying they'd made a massive breakthrough, which I guess is not really a surprise. But we saw um, Quattro, as you say, he needs top speed. The only ch- really the only thing they can do is this fairing update, and that sounds like it'll come at Mugello. Basically, it'll be a smaller fairing, is is what we're expecting. Less less downforce, less drag, a bit more top speed, and then they'll be they'll have two fairings. Then they don't have to get rid of the old one. So so if you like the one they're using now, which has more downforce, they'll be able to sort of switch between them. And so if they think they really need the speed and they're not going to lose so much on the acceleration, you know, it'll be a a choice they have to make. So expect that at Mugello, but there's still obviously this weekend at Le Mans, they'll still be using the current fairing. He tried a swing arm. He tried a new front fender to keep the engine a bit cooler. Again, might help a bit with with the engine performance, but uh, nothing special was, was his words. New clutch settings for practice starts, which basically told him that what he's got now is better. So again, nothing there. New brakes. The, the MotoGP has got bigger brakes this year for, for the circuits like Austria, Buriram, Mategi, um, and he just wanted to try them to make sure he wouldn't have any surprises. I mean, rider feel, and, and I'm sure Keith can explain this, but quite often it's not just the performance of the brakes, it's the feel of them. Uh, and I think they wanted to just make sure that when they put these bigger brakes on, as they will have to do, because we saw Vinales had these issues in, the, in Austria previously, that he's not going to have, have any nasty surprises. So that was basically his day. He, he was relatively happy, but again, nothing special. Honda uh, aerodynamics seemed to be the main thing for for Marc Marquez. Various aerodynamic parts, including last year's um, wings. I think they're trying to find this feeling for the smaller tracks that they've lost with the front of the bike. But um, again, he he said our weak point is still there, so nothing nothing massive there. Bastianini, as you say, got the twenty two fairing, so that obviously still fits on the twenty one bike. And um, he said. Liked it at Jerez, but have to see at Le Mans what it goes like. But he said, you know, if he had to do the race in Spain now, he'd put the new fairing. So uh, KTM, some new exhausts, uh, things like that. But yeah, maybe nothing, nothing radical. And as always, as we're saying, with a post-race test, the grip levels are different. The temperatures are different. It was windy as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, n- no, no massive breakthrough. But as I say, to be honest, the end of the test was really sort of overshadowed by this news from Suzuki. And then we go to Le Mans, the worst track on the, the whole calendar. <laughs> oh, dear me. Do you really think it's the worst track? I do. I think that it's a crash fest every single year. We have more crashes at Le Mans through all three classes than anywhere else. You know, the weather can be major factor. I mean, look what happened last year. We went from dry to wet to dry in one race. You know, people, you know, we had to... 
swapping bikes and so on and so forth, crashing out, long lap loops for speeding in pit lane. Still won though, didn't he? Even though he had a long lap loop for <laughs> speeding in pit lane, good old Miller. Um, you know, Le Mans, you know, right from when you get there, they change the, the entry roads in at will you know you one minute you can come down one road and the next minute you come down it has gone one way and there's a load of police stood there with guns and you can't come that way so you've got to work your way around another way and then half the campsite's been burnt down by a load of animals that are living there over the course of the week you know fences dragged out of people's homes to be burnt on bonfires i suppose it's better than burning people on bonfires that must be the next stage for, for some of the uh the fans that go to le mans not i have to say that it's 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 great fun if you live in the 1970s, but I think as far as a, 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 you know where we are now in the world, I think Le Mans has fallen a long way behind in in what you might expect from a Grand Prix. Um, if you fancied a you know Woodstock kind of affair with bonfires, no toilets, and living in a tent, then um, maybe it's for you. But they get a lot of fans, don't they, Keith? You have to say that. I think it's one of the <laughs> most popular. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most popular events of the year. One of the most surreal things I've ever experienced at a Grand Prix. It was a few years back. But Le Mans media room is several floors up. It's quite high up. And it was coming, I think it was the end of a Friday. And uh, still working away. Looked out the window and there was, I don't know what you call them, but these those skateboards, that sort of hoverboards. But this guy was level with three, four stories up. This was part of the entertainment for the fans. They tried to keep the fans from the fan site, I guess, to stop them rampaging. They tried to keep them entertained with with shows on the main straight. And uh, yeah, well, uh, this guy, I mean, it was it was it was pretty impressive, I've got to say. But yeah, I, I had to think if I if I maybe the, had something stronger man, than coffee. Wasn't it? Had the, the rocket man with the rockets on his arms and everything, and shot up and down. You just hope it doesn't misfire at any point. <laughs> yes. he was high. Yeah, he was high. The, the thing for was me it, is the tunnel going under under the track, going up into the into the paddock. I mean, I don't know where all these people get all the passes from. You can never park. There's never there's never any room to park. Doesn't matter what class of parking permit you've got. Um, but the favourite one is is trying to get in and out when the fans are trying to get in and out at the same time, and they have this system where, they, and I, I remember, of course, they love the they love the British. Don't ever go there with a GB sticker on your car. Because it's fatal. I remember seeing a car in front of me, a bunch of bunch of um, British, and I've never seen so many willies hanging over the the walkway as they weed on his car all the way along the walkway. Um, it's not the most pleasant experience I've ever come across. Take an umbrella. <laughs> Take an umbrella. For, for what? The rain or? <laughs> Various well, uses. Well, good about having the amount of rain they have in Le Mans. At least it cleans the place down afterwards. It is. It is. It is an experience. I have to say, it is an experience. And Le Mans, actually, Le Mans, the the, the city, the, the the I think it's a city, isn't it? Le Mans it's got a cathedral in it. It's lovely. You know, nice trams. It's a, it's a very very nice place to be. But the actual track drops back a few decades in uh, in uh, the way the fans and the, the like interact with the whole place honestly it's uh, it's quite an interesting place always produces a shock limon shock results you know you quite often get um, an unusual result there uh, which which chucks the cat amongst the pigeons it's one of them ones where you, you know you get people that, that win races that end up on the podium that you 
you weren't expecting. We should do well with our predictions this week, don't you? I've just I've just had a look at the weather for Le Mans this weekend, and no chances of rain at the moment. But I know we're only recording this on a Monday, but Friday and Saturday looking fairly sunny. Sunday a little bit of cloud, but still sunny. Highs of twenty seven degrees. So well, I mean, be, I, uh... I hope we have a dry race meeting. Um, having said that, I quite like the way that, that Le Mans keeps you all on your toes regarding uh, what setup you're going to be running. Um, I mean, it's a very simple track. It's a very, you know, it's a fairly easy track to learn. Very, quite an easy track to to, to work out in the end. Um, you know, the, the the big issues really are, you know, top of the hill going through that chicane, which used to be flat out over the top in the olden days, um, under the Dunlop Bridge. Um, always a lot of accidents up the top there because you're approaching it. I mean, you remember that Jack Miller crash a few years ago? I mean, just spectacular. I mean, I still hold my breath when I see the repeat of it nowadays. I mean one of the biggest crashes I've ever seen. And he got up and walked away from it, stunned, shaken, but not stirred, sir. Um, pretty impressive. But Le Mans, when I said at, at, at the opening gambit, crash fest, always the most crashes out of any Grand Prix every year, virtually. Well, if you haven't booked your ticket yet, I don't know uh, if you want your refund or what. Uh, 50-50 gamble, I think, for this weekend. Um, hey, but what, it, what I just said might have encouraged more people to go. I know, you but know, what that, you said before that, that, that might... That lack of regulation, <laughs> that, that, kind of, that kind of 1980s, early 80s feel about a place, a lot of people like that kind of situation. Absolutely, you know, just uh, don't say it, you're British. It's, 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 it's not about hotels and Miami F1 where if you're not spending a million bucks to park yourself in a in a yacht that's in a car park I mean how ridiculous was that have you ever seen anything like in a, it? it's Anybody a marina unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> they painted oh, the floor Mont- yes. blue and put some boats on it to make it a marina <laughs> I think that that's what's most that is what MotoGP is missing quite frankly I think um Right, I think what's important is we do our predictions uh, for this one before we move on. Uh, Keith, then, as you say, we could do quite well with our predictions here, or at least one of us could do quite well, because it's certainly uh, a little bit uh, of a gamble in MotoGP anyway, and Le Mans perhaps more so than some other tracks. Who's your one, two, three? Are you asking me? Yeah. Go on. You're the Le Mans expert. Bagnaia Quattararo. Yeah. Bangyaya Quattararo. I've got to put Miller in there, haven't I, really? Bangyaya Quattararo Miller. All right. Okay. Interesting. A couple of oh, Ducatis on there. Zarco. Yeah, you, said, you said last time as well, the French always get a couple of extra yeah. tents at their home races. Well, they do, but, and, but it depends on the weather. I was listening to your weather forecast. You know, if it's dry, mm. you know, where Zarco really scores is, is and where, where the the anomalies come is when you get a little bit of damp here and there. Mm. I mean, it always throws in some really, really odd, odd races. I'll stick with what I said, because to be honest, it's like putting a pin in a bloody map anyway. <laughs> well, and it is only Monday, so the weather can very much change in the next few days. Um, Pete, who's your one, two, three? I will go Quattararo, home win. So, okay. and, and I had the same... Banyaya Miller kind of dilemma as Keith. So I'll go for Miller for second. Miller always goes well at this track. He's had some bad luck, but yeah, he goes well there. So I'll go with him second and I'll go Zarko third. I'll go for, uh, I think it's either going to go really well for Zarko. I think he's going to really rise to the occasion or, or it might not or go terribly. Well. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to go positive and say that he'll, he'll be on the podium uh, as last. Okay. 
I'm I'm also feeling the French vibes this weekend. So I am also going to go for a Quattararo win because I've now got a couple of points on the board and I feel like I can I can catch up here. Um, I'm going to go for an Alicia Spargro second. Uh, he's in f- form of his life at the moment and that Prillia running well. I've no idea if that's even backed up by any previous historic races. I don't think it is. Um, and then I'm going to go for Zarco third. So sorry, Pete, I've sort of copied you a bit there, but with a, a Spargro instead of Miller. Um, so that's my uh, one, two, three, Quattararo, Alicia Spargro and Zarco. Pete, Quattararo, Miller and Zarco and Keith Bagnaya, Quattararo and Miller. So uh, let us know your uh, predictions as well, as ever, in the comments below. Um, We'll all be wrong, but it'll all be fine. Um, So uh, exciting (laughs) stuff coming up for Le Mans. Um, And we've got a couple of Ducatis on there, uh, Keith. And it's a a big couple of uh, races for actually some of the Ducati drivers, uh, riders, I should say. Sorry, people have me having a go at me for that. Sorry, riders. who will get the seat alongside Francesco Bagnai? That is the big question. Ducati have stated in the last couple of days that they have confirmed their deadline for uh, a 2023 factory seat decision. It is very much between Jorge Martin, Enea Bastianini, Jack Miller, all battling it out for that second ride. So these next couple of races, including Le Mans, are going to be uh, big deals for these guys. Yeah, why would why would you be in a hurry to to make that decision? You shouldn't be. I mean, they're all contracted Ducati men anyway at this moment in time. With the the Mir and Rin situation coming into play now, that's definitely made it a lot easier for Ducati to just hold off on a decision at the moment. Let's see how the boys go. Let's see see who's doing the business when it gets to. You know, there's only 45 points between. I think it is Marquez, uh, Marquez in ninth place in this championship, and and Quattararo leads the championship. 45 points. You know, it's, it's a very low scoring season so far, really. So there's a lot still to shake out over the, what, 19 rounds that we've got in total. So I wouldn't be making any decision. And certainly not now the Suzuki thing is out there. I mean, I think I'd sit back a little bit and say, OK, boys, you you race amongst yourselves. Let's see how you, you manage it. Jack Miller, if he can get a result this weekend, puts himself back at the head of the pile. Let's wait and see. Miller's had a little bit of a lull, perhaps, in Ducati's eyes. So... Yeah, this weekend might be the weekend he turns it around. I think that's exactly right, Keith. I mean, I think this Ducati statement or, or, or announcement, if you like, came out before the Suzuki sort of news broke. So this might have just made them press pause a little bit on this because, as he says, you've got two more riders now, two top riders who, who are looking for rides. Um, Paco Sanchez, Mir's manager, insisted that nothing was agreed with anyone else yet. You know, he's going to start talks with... I think almost every team is what he told me. So, you know, he will be, that means he will be speaking with Ducati, whether, as we say, they've, they've already got enough options. Thank you. But I don't think, you know, if you've got a rider of Mir's caliber and, and Rins, who knows, you're not going to just dismiss, dismiss that. I'm sure there'll be meetings with every manufacturer that's left to see, could we do something here? And, and it's just going to complicate Ducati's already complicated decision. Well, certainly a, a big few weeks ahead for uh, MotoGP up and down the field. Now, uh, before we uh, round out proceedings, uh, we touched uh, last uh, week in last uh, our last episode, Keith, on the uh, Marco Simoncelli documentary that uh, you uh, very much recommended to us to give it a watch. Um, we didn't delve into too much detail about it, though, because we were mainly focusing on, on Valentino Rossi. So... Uh, Marco Simoncelli, obviously a renowned name and a, and a tragic story as well in MotoGP, but but what a story for him as a rider. Talk us through the, the documentary. What was it called? Sick. 
SIC, which, um, as I think we established, meant something mm. quite rude. <laughs> mm. The abbreviation uh, means something quite rude in Italian, which I quite, and again, it's in the documentary, so I, I won't have to repeat it here because you'll all run them and want to watch it. It was on Sky Documentaries. It was made by Sky Italia, um, which, of course, is like the, the, the equivalent to Sky UK and so on. They have various regions that Sky operate out of. Um, I mean, the film itself, there were quite a lot of revelations in there that were quite interesting from Simoncelli. I didn't know Simoncelli particularly. You know, he he, he just he came on in my lull, if you like, in MotoGP when I wasn't actually around the paddock. So I didn't know Marco at all to speak to or otherwise. But I followed him from a youngster when he came up through the 250s. Um, because 250s is one of my favourite classes and what was the intermediate class, now Moto2, of course. Um, and it kind of showed how determined, I think, the young man was and how much backing he had from his family. I mean, he had a lot of forceful backing coming to to move him on through through the ranks, if you like, and the, the wrangles he had with Aprilia at the time. And, and all of that was narrated by the likes of Valentino Rossi and other pretty big names in our sport. So it was a well put together thing. Um, but at the end of the day, he crashed a lot. And the ultimate price was paid um, at Sepang, which, as I said last week, was ironic that Sepang was the, the, the scene of where he won his first world title in 2008 on a 250. And he was killed there, I think, um, was it turn 11 in 2011? Um, having lost the bike, you know, all his own accident, but then it turned to the inside and, and got collected by Colin Edwards and, and Valentino Rossi. Um, nothing they could do at all at the time. And I mean, you can imagine, you know, being part of, of, of something like that, particularly if the, the, the friendship that the Valentino had with, with Marco, it, it, it was tragic on, on another level. The documentary, I recommend the documentary to watch, obviously, um, and get from it what you will. I, I'd be interested to note what crash viewers, crash listeners um, have to say about that. Um, give us some comments on it because I'm quite reserved on what I'm, what I'm saying here, which is unusual for me. Normally, I'd go blasting away, shooting from the hip. But I, I came out of it with a slightly different impression about Marco Simoncelli than I think is the popular impression about Marco Simoncelli. Um, there was a certain ruthlessness there that I didn't really like that much, to be honest. Um, but, of course, I'm reluctant to say something like that over a man that's revered as much as he is. But, of course, in death, people always see something differently about a writer, an author, a person whatever it is. It's, it's funny how the, the viewpoint sort of changes after someone uh, is deceased. Um, but I'd be interested to, to, to know what uh, other viewers and listeners um, find when they've watched the documentary. Let us know what your thoughts are. We're always pleased to hear from you. Absolutely. And uh, we're not sponsored by Sky Documentaries, but you can find it on Sky Documentaries in, in the UK. And uh, if not, just uh, search for uh, the uh, title SIC and I'm sure it will be discoverable and um, there's a couple others you actually recommended to us as well just uh, off air last week I was because yeah, I am uh, ill-educated when it comes to MotoGP documentaries but a couple of others there that you uh, you certainly mentioned Racing to Immortality uh, Missile from the East a couple of good ones there Keith well race, race to Immortality is a Ferrari thing that's right up your street I'm actually surprised Harry that you've not sat and watched that that is that is your movie I mean, it is a, it's a really, really good movie. It goes back to the sort of 50s and 60s, um, 
mon ami mate and all the rest of it. You go back to the old um, uh, Mike Hawthorne days and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Very, very interesting doco for anybody that particularly in cars and Ferrari. But as a, the racing genre, it doesn't matter sometimes whether it's bikes or cars. The, the, the same amount, the level of dedication, risk, and everything else that goes with it. So I, I would suggest that even if you're a bike man and you go, oh, I'm not going to watch a bloody car movie, I still suggest you watch it. I do, and I really enjoy it. I mean, Race to Immortality is, is, is basically a doco about Enzo Ferrari, how he played off you know teams and team members against each other and how many people were you know, killed back in that day. It was all horrendous, but, but an interesting film. Missile from the East, you mentioned that. That's the Ernst Degner thing. Now, those of you that have got uh, Matt Oxley's book, um, Stealing Speed, if you remember, Suzuki signed up Ernst Degner. Degner uh, did a runner from East Germany at a time when it was very dangerous to do a runner from East Germany um, with his family. Uh, led a very sad life in the end as well. But um, if you've read the book Stealing, Stealing Speed, then Missile from the East is, again, very again a historic, you know, very interesting from from a world war perspective as well. So I mean, it's a perspective that maybe falls more and more in into perspective now that we've got this thing going on in Ukraine, of course. Um, so missile from the east recommended by good old Hewan. If you want to go back a few more, go back to Burt Munro, if you like as as well. You've got the, the, the you know what was it called? Bloody world's fastest Indian. That was it. World's fastest Indian, which was Anthony Hopkins. Burt Munro was a 68-year-old who had a dream to, to race this Indian motorcycle on the Bonneville Salt Flats or wherever it was. Again, a great movie. Who would have thought Anthony Hopkins would have starred in a bloody motorcycle movie? Good movie. Um, Neil Tuxworth at uh, Honda Britain, you know, the, the team manager at Honda Britain all those years ago, recommended it to me a long, long, long time ago. And I remember thinking, what Tuck's on about? And then I watched it, and it's one of those movies that you think, oh, how did I miss this? And maybe there are people out there that have missed it. So um, keep an eye out for the world's fastest Indian. Um, what's the other one that I really, really like? Oh, this is uh, uh, as much a political and world piece as anything. But if, if, if I was going to be reincarnated, if, if we're a Buddhist family here because my wife is, is devout Buddhist, so I don't care about any religion. So you, you, you can put me down as agnostic if you like. But if I was to be reincarnated, if I was to believe in the same thing as my wife, then I would come back as Gianni Agnelli. Look up Gianni Agnelli. He was the head of Fiat back in the day. And there was a great film called Agnelli about his life. Playboy, bit of a philanderer, brilliant industrialist, world player, politi politi politician. Can't even say it, so I'd be no good at it. Um, <laughs> but again... You know, out of Turin, Fiat were out of Turin, you know, you've got the racetrack around the top of the offices and all, just a brilliant movie about this this man and, and the life and what he did to bring Italy out of the the, the doldrums after all, after the war. Um, so, again, a, a very, very interesting movie. Do you want me to go on? <laughs> no, no, we're done. We're out of time. No, how, many, how many more you got? Oh, there's so many. There's so many movies that, uh, that basically... Uh, different people will get different things from them. Um, I think mm. with world events at the moment and the way things are, I think the Agnelli movie is a, is a good one. Obviously, you know, you, you go back to a darker era. Why are we leading this moronic life? How can we be in the position we are in, in the world? Why is it like it? And when you see that we've been there and done it all before, and here we are again, 
and our so-called bloody politicians who are supposed to be the ones that keep the world safe are you know we're looming on we're on the edge of the cuban missile crisis multiplied by four it's just nuts if you don't know what the cuban missile crisis is you know you won't do because most people are younger than me by a long way nowadays but you know we're talking about nuclear possibilities i mean how on earth can we be at that point shut up Hugh, and this is a bloody motorcycle podcast <laughs> and you shouldn't be going on about stuff like this <laughs> but you could also maybe I should, are you joining the world should be concerned no, I, I think you make some valid points and, and hopefully you'll be joining Sebastian Vettel on Question Time this Thursday uh, to make those points even even more. Uh, peace and love um, all the way through. Um, we'll leave the docs there because maybe we can come back to some more in future episodes and have a little what to watch on the box. Well, maybe uh, maybe our, our, our fans and viewers out there will have their own suggestions and we can um, we can comment on what they've um, what they've watched. I mean, there's Road, the Dunlop brothers. I'm going to the Northwest 200 on Wednesday this week. It's the Northwest 200 this week as well. So we've got plenty of things to be watching over the weekend. Um, and it brings it all back. I was I was commentating on the race that Robert was killed at Mathers Cross. You know, again, and if you've not seen the film Road, it's about the Dunlop brothers. And that is one tear jerking. You'll be getting a bit of grit in your eye when you watch that one, I can tell you. So there's one maybe this week with the Northwest 200 coming up and, of course, the TT coming up fairly soon as well in June. Um, it might be time to be getting out the old movie list. I've written them all down there. I think I'm going to have a great week. Um, how can we watch the Northwest 200? Um, Northwest will be going out. That's a very good question, actually. I feel like I ought to know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't I brief you on that one on beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> um, watch for your um, television listings, ladies and gentlemen. It will be out there. <laughs> Check the old TV guide. Uh, and uh, I'm sat alongside some old reprobate called Steve Parrish. Parrish and I are uh, joining forces for this one. So uh, uh, he and I are being brought back together to uh, commentate on the Northwest over the weekend. So I'm really looking forward to it, actually. It's a great event. And the weather here in the UK is really good this coming week. And blimey. Do the Northern Irish people deserve it for their main classic race of the year? Because they have had terrible times over the last few years. Um, so really and truly, this one is going to be an absolute... And there's some big names that are, are riding there as well. So it's going to be a great event. And well, you've I got MotoGP, a... which we'll all be I watching. Know. People are going to have a lot to watch this weekend. Unfortunately, Keith's voice is going to be all over, at least half of them. So uh, you're going to have to prepare yourself for that, ladies and gents. Um, now, before we come to an end, let's just bring it back towards this weekend in Le Mans. Pete, uh, what are you looking out for in particular? What are you hoping for and hoping to see from Le Mans this weekend? I think one of the big questions will be Banyaya. You know, obviously, he, he's had this disappointing start to the year. We've seen him sort of building, building, and now he's got the win under his belt. Now, can he build on that? Can he really start eating into Quattararo's lead? It's going to be important for him to do that. But I think that's that's going to be one of the main things. And likewise, for Quattararo, we've got some, we've got Mugello coming up. We've got Catalonia after Le Mans, you know, tracks where he's going to be in that position again where he's struggling for top speed so he's really got to try and take advantage at uh, he was saying you know Jerez Le Mans are two tracks where he's really got to try and get the points in to maybe make up for things points that he might lose at those bigger tracks so big weekend for both of those guys at the front of the field and then as you say you know it's so close that really all of the others I mean who's going to be the next guys on the podium could could Suzuki could Mia having not had a podium this year you know in the aftermath of this this sort of devastating news 
put the bike on the podium for the first time. I mean, uh, in 2022. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be close as ever. Good news that the weather's going to be good, I guess. As you say, it's always it's always uh, been known for unpredictable weather and that makes unpredictable results. But I think even without that, even with a nice, stable sunshine, we hope, fingers crossed, I think it's still going to be so close to call. For me, John McPhee's back, Moto3, uh, scheduled to be back. Hopefully his back will be working good enough for him to perform. It's going to be a tall order, even at uh, Le Mans, there's no doubt about that. But what am I looking forward to this weekend? A Jake Dixon win in Moto2. Sam Lowe's Jake Dixon, round Le Mans, is the kind of place that one of those guys can pull it out of the bag. To be honest, I don't care which one it is, as long as we get one of the Brits on the top step, that'll do for me. Yeah. But Jake Dixon, having <laughs> had that disappointment a couple of years ago, where he crashed out, what, some three or four laps from the end when he got the job covered. He'd done all the work he needed to do. And that Mickey Mouse little double right hand of finishing onto the start and finish straight that he slid off of. Oh, it ripped his heart out and everybody else's as well because he did deserve to win that. So a Jake Dixon win this weekend, that would sort of level it up for me. Well, lots to uh, look out for then, indeed. It's going to be a, a busy weekend of two-wheeled action, it seems. Thank you, gents. We'll leave it there for now. Make sure uh, you stay tuned in across Crash.net for all the very latest, as usual, news analysis and everything in between across the week. And we'll be back with you once more next week to look back at Le Mans and look forward into the continuing races. Get your questions in, leave them in the comments section or tweet Instagram or Facebook us. Just search Crash Moto GP. We have got a, a huge bank of questions, which we will get answered uh, it's just finding the right time to do them so don't worry keep sending them in uh, because it's always good to have lots of questions lined up for our expert guests uh, guests call you guests you're regulars really aren't you um so get them in please do leave us a review wherever you are in the world and wherever you listen to your podcast and we shall see you right back here next week bye-bye imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.